0: This is Mark Kermode. Welcome to BAFTA Podcasts.
1: What I'd like to do first of all is just ask everyone on the panel to introduce themselves to you. Jeremy, would you like to
2: introduce yourself? Uh,
3: Yeah, My name's Jeremy Baxter. I'm head of acquisitions at Protagonist Pictures, which is an international sales and finance company. We've represented films like Shifty, Killless, Tyrannosaur, Snowtown. And your sister sister. Some low budget lower budgeted films. So. I'm Ben
0: Pugh and I'm a producer and I produced a film called Shifty and a film called Welcome to the Punch.
2: And I'm Carrie Fitzgerald from High Point Films. We're an international sales company. We have a feature film division, a television division, and a UK DVD division. And we've worked on many, many low budget films over the years, and on the microwave scheme we worked on Mum and Dad and Freestyle. And,
1: and I'll introduce myself as well. Um, I, my name is Wendy bevan I work for Creative England at the moment. Um, so my dual relationship with uh, micro budgets is that Creative England are the body behind Eye Features. Um, but before I worked for Creative England, I was a line producer, and I line produced one of last year's Eye Features, which was called In the Dark Half. I also line produced Skeletons and a, a slightly a higher budget film called Broken. So that's who I am. So really, I think the, the first the thing that we should probably start with is just um, to find out, maybe we can start with you, Kerry, about what the market is feeling like at the moment. And I don't think we even necessarily need to say for micro-budgets at this point, but just what's it like out there for sales?
2: Well, like everything else, um, the market's not great at the moment. And as you said, it makes no difference whether it's a bigger-budget film or a lower-budget film. If you're talking about for British films... It depends really what the film is. I would say that um, dramas are the most difficult to place. But if you're talking about low-budget genre films, they've always got their market, whatever the level is. So like horror films, for example. Hmm.
1: Do you think there's um and Maybe, Jeremy, you'd like to answer this one. Do you think, what do you think that the key trends have been say, in the last five years. I mean, we're going to be talking to Ben about his experiences on Shifty, and that was made in 2008, I believe, so it'd be just good to know if you can see any sort of key trends from yeah, that well, I mean, time the, to the, now. The, the,
3: the landscape has completely changed since I mean, Protagonist was set up in 2008, and actually Shifty was one of the first films we picked up. But the kind of advancement of digital in that space has really kind of changed what a low-budget film can be and uh, where it can go and the kind of gap between a filmmaker and the market is, is, is shrinking every year and that will continue to shrink. The opportunity to get your film out is, is better than ever before actually. There are more platforms, there are more distribution opportunities but the, the, the key thing remains getting your film seen and the awareness to get you know, the audience, the eyeballs on your film.
1: Okay. Kerry, what, what do you think? I mean, how do you think it's sort of changing at the moment? Do you see any key trends emerging, and where do you think we're,
2: we're going in sales? As uh, Jeremy just said, you know, there, there are more places to go in the, the, with the different platforms, but that doesn't mean to say from a commercial point of view that there's more money, whereas before we would sell all rights in a territory to one person. We would now be dividing up all the different rights and selling those to different, in a ter- different people in a territory, but it doesn't necessarily mean there's more money. The market changes all the time. I mean, um, High Point's 22 years old, and we've seen a lot of changes in that time. And, you know, one just has to go with it and and hopefully be a little bit ahead so you know what to expect. I'm
1: sure there are probably some people in the room who aren't entirely sure what a sales agent does. Would Mm -hmm. you mind giving a
2: sort of an overall picture Mm -hmm. of what it is that you do? Well, that again, that relationship's changed an awful lot over the years. Um, It used to be that a sales agent would literally take on probably a finished film and sell it on behalf of the producer. Now we're much more like executive producers because we increasingly need to help raise the finance for a film, uh, whether it's through pre-sales or gap funding or, or whatever. I think more or less every film we've ever worked on has been financed in a slightly different way. So basically, the sales company looks after the film, the licensing the rights of the film internationally, and I would say you know, in certain circumstances, it helps to actually put the film together in the first place. So it's important to build up a relationship with your sales agent, I think, early on in your development process.
1: And Jeremy, how, how soon, ideally, would you want to board a project?
3: Well, ideally, we come on board as early as possible. So, I mean, Protagonist is quite a filmmaker-driven company. So if there's a, a, a filmmaker or you know, producers attached to the director, then that's really our first port of call. We don't develop as such, but like um, Kerry says, well, we want to come on and help package the project and help them get to market. I mean, we do now and again, where, where, especially where it's kind of you know, more micro-budget films, um, we only take on 10 films a year. So there are opportunities for us to come on board a finished film. So Shifty was a good example of that, where we, we only came on board once the film was finished or mm. at least got to a kind of screening copy. So we came on board then. And we, we go to festivals, we, we take films to festivals, but we also go to festivals to look for films. So we picked up a film called Your Sister's Sister at Toronto last year. But in the main, we do want to come on board and board and partner the producer. We don't want to be... The, the, kind of the old traditional notion of the sales company being this kind of faceless middleman it is, is thankfully kind of a thing of the past.
1: So how do you get to be one of this, these elusive ten films what is it that you're looking for? Because obviously the market is saturated and becoming, you know, there are more and more and more films being made, particularly at this budget level. Is there what stands out for you when you're looking for something?
3: Things that stand out at any festival, other things, you know, quality rises you know, to the top. And you're looking for distinct, you know, distinct voices, signature filmmakers, you know, people who just stand out whether they're telling personal stories or genre stories, just really strong narratives, you know, and the script. I mean, the script, it all boils down to the script Mm -hmm. more often than not. I mean, it's like any business. You want to work with people you like and get on with, and, you know, we come on board for the life of a film. It's not just year one. We're there for the whole 15, 20 years of a film's life, so, you know, that's important.
2: Kerry, for you, one I mean, I think probably Jeremy and I are going to be saying exactly the same things because That's we're always fun. looking for. Uh, one thing that Jeremy mentioned, it's really important. It is a partnership, really, when you're working with a sales company. And it's a long process. And um, it's really important that you can work together because you can have you know, the most watertight uh, contract between you in the world. And if you don't get on, there's absolutely no point. You really need to be able to work together.
1: So finding a sales agent where there's a good fit for you as people
2: as yes. well as yeah.
1: a fit I mean,
3: the project most, is most important. As distributors and sales agents, you know, there will be branded companies. So, I mean, the producers we respond to most are the, you know, the most proactive people who already know, you know what our films are, what our tastes mm-hmm. are, I and mean, people mm-hmm. who come to us and say, look, we've got a film we think it's the right fit for you. That's you know, hugely beneficial, especially when it's a cold conversation you've never met someone. But yeah, so do kind of your research on sort of kind of, you know, where would you like your film to go? When you were kind of, you know, conceiving your film, which distributors do you want to work with?
1: Ben, when you worked on Shifty, how did your relationship with the sales agent begin? Was this, um, as your film was made through the Microwave Scheme, were you were you given a sales agent at the beginning of this? Was that part of the process, or did you complete the film and then have to go out and find no, to f- match the
0: project? The film, so we fi- the film was financed through money from Film London, and then from private equity. So it was kind of just cash, essentially. And all the rights remained other than the UK TV rights. So everything was sort of for sale. So then we finished it creatively and it was able to be shown somewhere like this. And we invited all the UK distributors and sales agents to one room and kind of created a, hopefully we're going to create a bidding war, which did happen in the UK. Internationally, people didn't feel the film had to say quite, you know, had it wasn't a film that they wanted to kind of get into a bidding war over but Protagonist responded to it I think in terms of Iran the director and sort of the film's potential where we just talked about the potential for it to be in a festival so we met Ben Roberts who runs Protagonist with Jeremy and we we said okay let's we'll work on it together and then the guys took it to a number of markets and sold lots of the rights and just did a deal for America and so it was good, a good relationship
3: yeah I mean we were, we were chatting just before we got on here I mean the Shifty is a great example of how important the festival circuit is to low-budget film. Shifty, I mean, we, we just responded to... Ben and I just viewed Shifty, thought it's great, great film, great filmmakers. These are the kind of films we want to be kind of, you know, helping launch. And we believed that it warranted a, a place on a, on a, a key festival. We, we will look at films and, you know, we will try and imagine where we are going to launch the film. So in Shifty's case, unfortunately, we had it on a shortlist to get into Sundance, but it was bumped just a couple of weeks beforehand. It was a particularly strong year. We actually had four films that year in Sundance already. <laughs> it's a particularly strong year for UK film, and uh, it kind of Shifty kind of felt uh, was was a, was a victim of that. Ultimately, we weren't able to get it a kind of international festival launch. So as Kerry mentioned earlier, for drama especially, you, you have to get it a critical response. You have to have the critics kind of tell distributors this is a film of note and you must pay attention to this film. So that's what we've done with *Killers*, Tyrannosaurus, Snowtown. You know, Snowtown is an Australian film made for kind of half a million dollars and if that film hadn't gone to Cannes we wouldn't have sold it. You know, you have to get um, that launch and then unfortunately Shifty didn't Benefit from that, but in the shifting marketplace now, you have got VOD. You know, we've just done this US sale. Hopefully, there'll be uh, a good platform for Shifty now, especially on the back of these guys making their next film. You know, people will kind of go and see Welcome to Punch. They'll, they'll, they'll see kind of Riz Ahmed's career develop. So hopefully, yeah, there'll be a good future for sh- uh, Shifty in that regard. It's, so. it's quite interesting if you think about the films that. Get,
0: they kind of get into a festival, and then they make more international sales. A kind of those movies you just mentioned are kind of more, almost more art house. Mm. So in a way, it, you've got to kind of think about what type of movie you want to make, and whether you want to make international sales or not. And say kind of Snowtown or Kill List and um Tyrannosaur, they're not particularly probably worried about making international sales when they were being financed, I guess. But well, they, due they... to getting to the festivals, they. Can for a and then but it's kind of they're quite art house and sell well on one end of the spectrum, and then you could make a really commercial film over here that will sell really well as well yeah. for different for different
3: reasons. Kill, Kill List and um, Snowtown in particular benefited from being they are art house films, but they also have a strong genre bent. So you know, Kill List will be sold in some we we sold it quite widely, but in a lot of territories it, it would be viewed as be sold as a kind of hitman horror. You know, the German. I was laughing with the guys the other day about the German and the Japanese poster which kind of feature the two guys like as if they're kind of faceless Jason Statham types and the tag is kill list, who's next? You know, they're not selling it for the art, they're selling it for the kind of the genre and Snowtown goes out in the US via IFC as the Snowtown murders. So they're going for the serial killer thing. So Tyrannosaur, obviously hard-hitting domestic abuse drama. That was sold back on the back of the film winning at Sundance and two excellent performances. But it, it, we sold it widely, but not for a lot of money.
1: I mean, obviously, every film will be presented in a different way at um, at festivals, but it's something that we were talking about before we came on. Do you feel that there's... Kerry, um, maybe you'd like to answer this one about the difference in budgets and whether or not that makes any difference to you once you actually have taken the film onto your list. Do you take a film on and then... It then just becomes one of the films on your list, which happens to be a drama or a horror or a this or a that. Or do you, or are you always thinking, this gets a different treatment because it's a micro budget?
2: No, I look at every film as a film, whatever the budget. The other thing I mentioned earlier is that microwave. Um, everyone knows how much microwave costs. Generally speaking, we never ter- we never disclose the budget for film to any any distributor before we're talking to them. You can tell just by looking at a film, if you've seen so many films, more or less how much it costs anyway, because they always have that figure in their mind. And so, you know, if they know it's, it's going to cost, it's costing X much, they will only pay X much to buy it, which is why the festivals are so important, as Jeremy was just mm-hmm. saying, to position any film, even a genre film, even a horror film, you know, there's a whole network of horror festivals, for example, which is really important to get your films in. To give it the right level and to get the exposure, so whatever the budget for film, we have to look at it as a film, not a low-budget film. But essay. do you find
1: that that makes um, a difference? So if if a film comes from a scheme mm. and the budget is is advertised, mm-hmm. do you then find that, as you just mentioned now, is it really that difficult to sort of drive up the take that you're going to get for that particular
2: film? From a nego- I, mean, if you th- I mean, this is hard-nosed negotiate. I mean, we can talk about, um, you know, talk about the creativity of a film and all that stuff, which is really important. Mm. But when you're actually making a deal, and you you know, it's, it's a negotiation. So any buyer is going to negotiate as hard as he can for any reason to get the price down as low as he possibly can. So, um, so when the, pu- the budget is published, it's difficult. Having said that, I know ill manners, for example, I know of a couple of very good deals that were done in Cannes. So, you know, you just have to sort of get over that hurdle.
0: (laughs) Well, they're going to think about the budget of the film and the value of the film, which is two different things, right? So with *El Manners in the UK, the value could have... It didn't prove to be as big a hit as it might have been, but the value could have been huge with Plan Mm. B in it. So that meant that people were bidding each other up in order to get the rights of the film.
1: Yeah, Yeah. because that's... I wanted to sort of play devil's advocate, really, because then I wanted to move on to if your budget has been published and it's sort of, in a way, working against you... What is it that you can actually you can bring to the table to say, despite that, here is what gives my film value?
0: So in the UK, people did want the film, and there was a competitive situation, and we didn't, we, and it pushed the price up, but I think people mainly wanted it for the relationship with the filmmaker. Um, and then they thought there was some DVD value in it, and, metro, and a number of people wanted to do a kind of 50-screen release, which is roughly what was done in the end, mm-hmm. which proved to be kind of in order to get a critical response in order to drive the DVD. So... That was good, and, and they got the value right. If you look at the numbers that we've got, Metrodome, mm. we released it, made a lot of money. On, well, not a lot, but they made sort of at least five times what they laid out, so they were right and perceived the value correctly. But they were able to kind of drive a lower number because they knew the budget of the movie, so they knew everyone, where people would start to make some money. And mm. In hindsight, if I did that again, we'd definitely try and get more money from them because I, sort of, we now understand the value of that film a bit better and other movies, but at that time, we didn't sort of have that expertise to be able to do that
3: you guys also needed delivery yeah so so they gave Well, they wrote us a check for
0: um which would have come straight to us but because at that time to go out on even 50 screens you needed 35 mil prints which we hadn't budgeted in 100 grand then all the virtually all the money that they wrote the check for Mm -hmm. went to those which now if you manage to make a great film you can kind of get it out on 200 screens at least probably on dcps and
3: Yeah, I mean, just uh, when you're budgeting your film, you've got to, you know, uh, even how no matter how low budget, you've got you you should be able to get it to a DCP screening status now, which will give you your 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 festival platform straight up. The the, the last couple of years have been a real problem because you're still it's this huge transitional period where we still there are some territories which you know you still need to deliver 35 mil. You know, France is only just beginning to shift. The, the, The key major territories you can just deliver. DCP now. But you, yeah, you'd
0: make a commercial decision about your film. If you'd made a film for 100 grand and someone says, well, we'll give you 60 for it, you have to make all your prints, you'd just say no and say, well, I'd rather take the money. And because you can go out on VOD and you can get a good release, you'd just, it's a commercial decision
3: whether to do that now. Personally, I think VOD is a really exciting thing for low-budget filmmaking. I think you know, we've now, we've sold in the US, which is kind of the mature VOD platform, the, all, the rest of international was way behind, but it will, it's the inevitable future. As kind of cable gets kind of, um, more widely accepted and, and, and technology improves. But we've sold every film to the US now. I think Shifty was the only one which we kind of struggling for, the festival thing we talked about. You will have that platform, but you'll still need that first, whether it's theatrical or festival launch, to, 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 to stand out. Otherwise, you're just the one title in 3000.
2: So. I also think you shouldn't forget television, it's a huge market. Um, I'll just use quickly an example of a film that we had called Extraordinary Rendition. And the filmmakers had made it more or less on their own money and it was very low budget. And they brought it to us and we screened the film and really liked it. And They came to us because they needed the money to blow it up to 35. You know, when you're selling a film, timing is really, really important. And they came to us just before a big screening <coughs> event we have in London called, which is run by Film London, called the UK Film Focus. And we said to them, don't spend any more money. Just let us screen it at this screening event, where, which is an event in London where all the buyers from around the world were invited to screen British films. We had a fantastic screening. It was completely packed in the NFT one. And, um, but all the buyers came out and said, "We absolutely amazing film, but we don't think it's big enough for theatrical. And we're not, we, we, we couldn't put the P&A money up for a theatrical. So we sat down with the guys again and said, look, you know, this is absolutely clear. Let's sell it to television, and we have a TV division. And um, so one of the first deals we did was with the BBC. They screened the film just after Newsnight, just after a Newsnight discussion about rendition, and then they screened the film afterwards. So these brand-new filmmakers had more people seeing their film by going out on BBC Two at kind of a very good time during the week than if they'd actually had a, a very small theatrical release. So, you, you, you know, you can't ignore all the other... Television is actually a very important. And anyway, at the end of the day, we sold this film almost everywhere in the world to television because it was like selling news because this stuff was going on so much at the time. And they made all their money back and very, very low costs because it didn't go out theatrically. DVD did very well and because it had the TV advertising.
3: Yeah, and social media, I mean, that would just add to mm. the kind of, you know, you, you just, when you're even beginning to start out with your film, just think about harnessing. All those kind of social networks that will ultimately prove to be your kind of your audience. So you can get people discussing the film straight up. I think it's quite a good thing for documentary as well. In the same way you're talking about a rendition, like documentary mm. is going to be something that on VOD has a, a greater audience. I think mm. because you'll be you, know, you can discuss the social kind of uh, context of your thing and then see it. But so. So I
1: think as we were saying before we came in, it's about what you consider success to be for your project. Mm. And we were talking about. Um, Tyrannosaur as the example of a film which didn't get a huge audiences in, but critically, it was so well-received that for the filmmakers, it's doing the job that it needed to do, which is to put them on the map as filmmakers of of huge ability, although it didn't necessarily Mm. pack out cinemas. And it's about working out as a producer what it is that you want, what the different scenarios are for success. So, for example, in that it's making sales it's getting people to see it but it's not actually seeing it in the cinema but it's probably had more people now see that exactly. film and
2: it was something they were very passionate about it was something that they really wanted to campaign about and and I think probably most people saw it around the world because it went to television it went to public broadcasters um, so they at the end of the day they were happy with it I 'm sure they would have loved it if it'd been you know strong enough for theatrical but it wasn't. And that's the other thing, you know, our job is that we have to listen to the distributors. I mean, if they don't think, if they say it's not strong enough, you know, we can't shoot them and make them release something. You know.
1: Just to pick up on that point, what, do you have a general sense of what they are, what they would say would make a project strong enough? Because one thing that we haven't actually discussed yet is cast, and I'm particularly interested in, in cast levels when you're shooting micro-budget. Um, Because we've had some tremendous micro budgets coming out recently, with with some surprise names coming through, and I wondered how much of a pull that might be for you when you're taking a project on.
3: If you're talking micro budget, I mean, it's more. It always has to be the right person in the role. You know, a great performance by the right person, whether they're a name or not. Is going to add value to your film, especially you know if you can launch a new talent, just the same way that you, you know on Shifty you were launching Aaron, you, you know you're talking about a great performance by Riz, you know uh, Riz Ahmed. So um, that can be a sell. You don't necessarily have to have a cast name. I mean, yes, if you've got someone who happens to be the right person, that's great. I mean, we you were talking about your sister, sister earlier, which you picked up in Toronto, that had the benefit of having Emily Blunt in it, you know, which she's a name. Well liked around you know, the globe, so yeah, that was that was, a, that was a that was a big plus. But yeah, at this budget level, I think it's more about the, the, the film, the you know what, what, the genre of the film, kind of those elements. So,
0: Insidious and then the sequel Sinister are quite interesting examples. They're like million dollar movies, but made very very well by quite you know experienced directors. So the new one Sinister's got Ethan Hawke in it. So. Insidious that.
3: didn't really have cast. No, moment, just so. good
0: actors. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm.
2: So. the thing is, you need a handle. Whether the handle is the genre, the cast, the or the music, like in Your Manners, you know, you need some kind of handle. And it's very unlikely to be cast in a in a in a micro budget or a very low budget film. Well,
0: yeah, having, yeah, having said that though, I would. So we're looking at, um, at films at a lower budget, kind of say between a million dollars and two million dollars as a slate. And in that scenario, when you can pay somebody something, but you can maybe give them an attractive back end, I, would, I think that you can be ambitious. If you've got a really good project, you can be ambitious about who you want to go for. And then if you get somebody like Ethan Hawke to be in your low-budget movie, you'll definitely be able to drive a harder bargain because it's like these guys, when they think about a movie, they think, well, is it good? Good's one thing. And then what are the other safety nets that are going to make people buy the DVD when it's sitting on the shelf? So if you've got that, you've got like another card in your deck to to drive a better deal and make more money at the other end.
1: It was something that we actually did when we made Skeletons because the, the filmmaker was very keen to make sure that the two leads of Skeletons were the people who'd come up with him through the short film. But there was one particular role which could have been cast however we wished, and we were lucky enough to cast Jason Isaacs in it. And it's, it was quite funny because actually the sort of Hello, Jason Isaacs game probably did more to get people in the cinema to see Skeletons than probably winning the Michael Powell Award just yeah. because it was... you know we, we got it out there, we got it on the radio. So that was... Um, sometimes casting can work against you. As you say, it's got to be the right person for the role yeah. rather than necessarily thinking, I have to get a name in this, in this film. And uh, looking at this example of Weekend as well, which has done phenomenally well, two completely unknown actors in the lead, but because they were the right, the right guys for the job, that film has done well. But that came from a, a festival success rather than, mm. than for through sale. I'm wondering, sort of moving on, it might be a good actually to talk about because we seem to have moved on a bit to advice for new producers and I wondered if you'd like to sort of give give any advice from your perspective or maybe about how to approach you might be the better thing to start with or what you're looking for in the package that they might
2: present to you well how to approach any sales company first of all as Jeremy said you need to do your research and see where your project would fit nicely and then it's just a case of really getting in touch with their development person one thing I would say is, you know, information overload is always a big disaster. Don't send anything more than, first of all, just a an email, and perhaps perhaps a synopsis, and try and get the conversation going, and, and try to meet with them if you can. I mean, I think most companies will meet you know, give up 10, 15 minutes of their time to meet you, and take it from there. But I think that's the most important thing is to try and get to know whoever the development person is at the company that you want to work with
3: you know, if you don't have a, a relationship with them already, just, as I said earlier, p- people always respond to kind of really well-prepared and packaged material. So, kind advance, of advance the project as far as you can before you go into a distributor or a sales agent. That, that kind of moment's the same moment that when we're selling on to distributors, you know, take away reasons for people to say no. So, if you're coming in and You're not budgeted, or there. You know, it it, it always depends on kind of the level of filmmaker. Whether you're a new filmmaker or or established filmmaker, have as much in the bag already as possible.
1: And how did your experience change, Ben? Through, I mean, the the two projects you've been working on, two vastly, vastly different projects in terms of scale. As you say, there's a a big difference in the relationship that you've got now. With, I mean, I believe you've had your pre-sold pretty much on on the new film. So. I wondered, can you tell us a bit about about the difference between the two films and the relationships that you've had with Sales Agents?
0: Well, both the Sales Agents, one's Protagonist and one's Iron Global, and both are very good. They do really different things, cover different types of movies. They do the same thing, but on different types of movies quite often. And we got them at completely different points in the process. So with Protagonist, as Jeremy said, we um, gave them a finished movie and then they... Um, we and we kind of worked on selling that internationally with them. And on Welcome to the Punch, what we did was we developed the movie. We had the director and we said we, 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 had, we had a cast list of people we wanted to get. So we sent out to kind of all the sales agents, all the film finance equity players in the UK and all the distributors and some Americans, all on the same day, we sent the script and the package. And with Iran's agents, they let these guys know it was coming. And we did a round of meetings. We met everybody and pitched them the movie and said it's going to come in a week and then we didn't send it in a week, and then they all rang the agents and said, where's, where's this? We all really want it. And they all thought they hadn't been sent it, and they were all ready and waiting for it. So then two days later, we sent them it. Virtually everyone read it on that day, because they'd been pitched what it was, and they'd been told it was a kind of action thriller set in London by the guy that did shift, directed Shifty with the aspiration to cast someone like Colin Farrell. So it was kind of clearly a commercial proposition, but from somebody that could make a good film. So there was a lot of buzz around it. and So we, in the end... We had a number of offers, and we went with a company called Automatic, which is part owned by own global. And they gave us this offer where they said, well, we'll fully finance your film. We'll write you a check. You don't have to worry about financing it. We don't have to, you don't have to worry about pre-selling it. We'll take care of all that behind the scenes. And that seemed like a brilliant proposition, a company with a lot of money. Anyway, we then tried to cast the movie. He met Colin Farrell. It didn't work out. Then we spent a year trying to cast it with other people. And being in the conversation with a sales agent at that point, who was incredibly supportive, but they're risk-averse. They're not, in some ways, you might, guys might disagree, but you know, they want you to put the, the, the highest bar on the actor at that type of movie to justify the writing a cheque and the risk they're going to take against all the international sales that they need to make subsequently to, to that, to that cheque being cashed. And um, we just couldn't make the two things match. We couldn't, get, we couldn't cast somebody of, let's say, a Colin Farrell level because those actors, what they were looking for was basically the US to be their backstop, that Colin Farrell was always going to get a movie sold in the US and they're going to cover their budget with the international sales and that. So then we had to pull back from that fully financing scenario and say, well, can you just sell, up, sell the movie for us? At which point they... Generate And they said, yeah, and they were supportive and great. They said, okay, you go away, put the film together. We did that with a guy at their business in any case. They remained very supportive. And they give you a list of highs and lows on all the territories. And that generates a kind of low figure for what they say they could sell the film for. And then we kind of went away and tried to cast the film. Cast it um, with James McAvoy, who, who hadn't been available when we wanted to start casting. We would have probably gone with him at that point if he would wanted to do it so luckily he said yes and then we had to kind of use those estimates to borrow money against them being a, a reputable sales agent people believe they're going to make those sales and we can find a gap lender against that and partner that money with the UK finance in terms of the MG from the distributor and the tax credit and then so the movie came together like that so they're kind of completely different in that way they being with a great sales agent that people believe in their estimates is like vital, because mm. otherwise you can't borrow the money that you need to borrow to get the film made.
1: I thought it might be a good idea at this point just to explain for those people who have not been through the process before about the, you know, the ask and the take and what sales agents' figures look like when they come in, because financiers are very good at sniffing out which figures you've been given. I wonder if you'd like to explain a bit about sort of how that works and how you as a producer need to be able to interpret those kinds of figures
2: we're really protective about our figures because, um, as Ben just said, they need to be recognised. People need to know, you know, bankers and everything, that these figures are possible to achieve. What we get so many times is producers coming to us saying, OK, we need, I don't know, 2 million or something, so we need figures of 3 million. Can you do that? And, of course, we can't. If we, if we, we can only estimate what we think we could sell a film for at this given time. I mean, if you look at figures from three years ago, they would have been much higher probably than today because people are not paying as much as they did three years ago at the moment. So it's a kind of live document, really, um, doing sales estimates. So um, basically, when we look at sales estimates, we look at what we would ideally like to get and the kind of bottom line of what the, the low estimate is, is, the minimum that we think that uh, we would get we give those estimates to the producer of however it's being, the film is being put together. And as a rule of thumb, um, most investors like to sort of, they, they look at the, um, the low prices, the take prices, and a lot of the time they like to make sure they're gonna get at least 150% of what you've estimated. So if they're gonna put in 100, they want to make sure that the low prices come up to 150 for argument's sake.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, Carrie says, a kind of sales agent, currency is those numbers, so they will always have to be kind of the most realistic they can be, otherwise the banks will they, they just won't um, work, work with us, so we'll, we won't be able to kind of make relationships with the producers. So yeah, we, you, know, tw- you know, maybe twenty years ago there was this kind of thing where you could kind of inflate numbers. That just doesn't happen anymore. And yeah, we we work with the team, the whole sales team. Each each person has their own kind of territories they look after, and they will have those individual relationships with the buyers. And every film is different in every territory. It's kind of knowing the culture and how it will respond to that particular film and filmmaker. It's a very kind of precise thing. To be honest, that was pretty baffling. And I
0: found it, it's, you have to kind of get through the process to understand it. Oh, well, I did anyway. Maybe other people find it easier. But I had to, like, once i having been through that, I, I get, I understand it. But at the beginning of that, it's, it, it, you're just finding your feet. And so what, if you're financing a movie in that way, you need a good lawyer. Someone that you're paying for advice. So that, because everyone's sort of nudging you around and trying to get what they want out of the deal. And you just need to have somebody there that's just being paid to look after you. And nobody's doing it sort of in an underhand way, trying to take advantage. But everyone's got a slightly different agenda in those situations. So if you are working at that level, it's worth having a lawyer around and a film financing lawyer that gets that is a a key thing to do.
1: I mean, in terms of the the territories, way way back years and years ago, um, I did some work for Pathé International when that was starting up, and I remember at that point. If you had a horror for example, then you know, you wanted to start in Italy and Japan and so on. Do you have a, any sort of genres and territories that, that go together? Because I think it's quite surprising sometimes where where projects sell and were there were there any surprises for you with, with selling Shifty? It's travelled in a way that you may not have expected for a very, very British film.
3: Well again, you know, Shifty is perceived as a drama. So that's probably the toughest. Uh, especially at a kind of you know, what is deemed a lower budget, that's probably the toughest genre to get out there. That, that's where the critical fact comes in. But yeah, if you've if you've got horror films or thrillers, you, you, you can look to the majority of kind of you know Latin America, for example, kind of lap that stuff up. They don't want to. You know, that, and the best we could do with Shifty is a kind of you know a, a pan TV deal
2: for genre films like horror films. You know, and genre films go in and out of fashion, so. Um... Horror films might be popular at the moment, then they go out of fashion for a little while and then they come back in fashion. But I would say, um, so talking about Mum and Dad, for example, um, which was a horror film, the first territories to sell would be the European territories like Germany, France, a very strong horror territories. US always sells. So if it's a genre film, it's, really easy, it's easier to sort of make a kind of quick map about where you're going to sell it to first. But um, as Jeremy was saying, with a drama, it really depends on when you go out there and what the reaction is.
3: Yeah, or if you've got kind of if you've got indie drama, that's kind of you know, always tough. You can sell you know, US, France, Australia, uh, Asia, but you know, places like Germany, they, they don't, they, you, know, the, the, you can halve your number immediately for an indie drama. Just, it's just there's no market for it there whatsoever. And Italy's tough. Spain, you do sell Spain, but it, it's f- for not a lot of money.
2: Japan for
3: horror as well, it's a
2: huge market. Um, I just
1: wondered actually if now would be a good time to open it up to the floor for questions because then one thing that we haven't touched on yet which I'd like to come back to is is sort of the the future of sales and particularly talking about video on demand and online and also the importance of um, social media in getting your film out there particularly when you don't have a, a sales agent on board but I just thought while we're talking about the actual sort of nuts and bolts, um, whether it might be a good idea to, to open up and see if there are any questions out there. I can see one already at the back. Gentleman
3: there. Thank you. Um, going back to Kerry, I believe your name is, at a high point. Mm-hmm. Um, you spoke about the extraordinary rendition film selling to TV. Is that unusual to sell a low-budget film to TV?
2: No, no, not at all. If it's a good film, it will sell. TV is very selective, you know, people in the film business, because we've always had our TV division as well as our film division, and film people used to be a bit um, snooty about the television business and used to think, oh, well, if this film doesn't work, you can sell it to television. Well, that's not the case at all. It still has to be a, a good film to sell to television. It's just a different taste and a different market. But um, television can be very lucrative. I mean, just a little example of a, f- bizarrely, a film that we sold to TV in Germany. You know, you can get, like, €100,000 for TV rights alone, if you're lucky enough to be able to sell it to TV because, in Germany, because it's not easy to do. To have actually grossed €100,000 out of a film that's been released, a small film that's been released in Germany, that's gone out theatrically and everything, you'd have to be doing pretty well as, a, as the rights holder to have gotten that much money back. So TV can be very lucrative. Anyone else?
0: Hi, hello. Um, my name is Sonny. I'm a director. And uh, I just got a, a quick question. I just want to know, um, in terms of uh, territories, um, how far would the uh, Nigerian films travel, in terms of, let's say, like African films, like uh, Viva Riva or First Grader? I mean, how, how far would they travel internationally and stuff?
2: We sell films from all over the world, to be honest. Any language, we don't have a problem with language. We don't only sell British films. So, again, you look at the f- a film as a film, not as a Nigerian film or a Dutch film or a French film. That really absolutely depends on the film itself rather than the nationality of the film.
1: Hi, I'm Suzanne Wade. I'm a theatrical agent. So in terms of contracts, does it matter if it's an equity or a SAG contract or it could be anything in terms of a sales agent or distributor? And then I have another question, is what do you think is the flavour of the genres for the next five years worldwide? <laughs> Jeremy, why don't you start with this? Um,
3: crystal ball. Um, <laughs> Uh, well, in terms of the, the contracts, I guess that's more of a maybe a Rory question. I don't know. When it comes down to um, SAG and the guilds, it's not really something that will... Well, like when we just sold
0: Welcome to the Punch to America, and they wanted to know if it was equity or SAG, because if it's SAG, they have to pay more residuals. and that, So they, they were very happy to hear it was equity, but they would have been fine to also know that the movie is not made on... It was completely non-union. As long as it's legal, then and they're fine.
3: I mean, we're mostly doing kind of UK, UK films with... Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's a question, but it's, it's never one that really prevented any sales at all. It would
0: have um, probably In the States, it would have probably brought... If there was big SAG residuals, it might have brought their number down a little bit. but that's A little it. bit.
3: Yeah. Um, and then your second question was about the, what <laughs> what should we all be making. It's, it's the same thing. We, we, we talk about... There's a lot of films out there which are kind of great... Genre fair, so sci-fi, thriller, action—all these films will always, always have a market. And the the kind of the the fluctuating response to personal filmmaking—that is always the interesting part. Like I said earlier on, I think documentaries are going to, in terms of the social media aspect of kind of where we're going with VOD, I think documentaries are going to kind of shoot up. We just took on our first two documentaries this year: something called *The Imposter* and *Searching for Sugar Man*. Yeah, they're both films that are already being talked about on Facebook, um, Twitter, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. And I think that whether they're being theatrical releases or day and date VOD theatrical, they've already got. They can harness that, you know, all that leverage that social media gives you to increase the audience straight up. And I think that would be really beneficial. But we shouldn't. You know, I'm not saying we should all just be going to documentaries. There's huge amounts of sci-fi movies coming out. People trying to tell
0: their stories in the sci-fi world because they, as a way to kind of draw an audience. If they're in, the, in terms of theatrical movies, try and tell a story that might have been a drama once, but get people to come to the cinema to see it. Give them a reason to kind of come out. That next year seems to be full of those, but yeah. maybe next
3: after next year, then that will change because be yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just telling the same stories in just new, fresh ways. Um, just you know dressing up the traditional stories with kind of new, unconventional. skin if you like which is what sci-fi has always been good at because you can talk about contemporary times but you know reflected through a a whole different vision and show people something new.
1: Do you think that the British council estate drama, pretty realism drama is dead now?
2: Do you you think we've reached the end? (laughs) (laughs) I think if you're Ken Loach you know, uh, yeah, that's well, fine. Yeah, Ken Loach, then you're but, all right. Um, I think that's it's a visual medium. People don't want to be depressed. You know, you go to the cinema. I'm mean, talking about foreigners. You know, they they don't want to, particularly. It's my experience anyway, that unless it's Ken Loach or there's some cultness about it, that it's just not interesting to to an international audience.
1: So, what do you think does travel that's inherently British? Because a lot of the films that You know, we we seem to have had a a trend of those. But what comes out of Britain that you think actually travels well, that an international audience actually really care about? So, although obviously we're we're guaranteeing that this is a brilliant story, brilliantly told, Mm. but are there particular British things that uh, appeal
2: internationally? People like sort of posh English, you know, royalty and stately homes and, you know, what's the Julian Fellows series? Downton Downton Abbey. Internationally, people love that stuff out of the UK. But, I mean, at the end of the day, it's, um, you know... I'm, not, I'm not, like,
0: not worried about making British films at all. I just think it's kind of... Uh, if you talk about Twitter and Facebook, and I mean, it, it, that's not British. and there's, You don't go to a British page of that. You just make a story that people want to see. Film. Yeah, I well, think there's great stories to be told on a council estate, but they're probably for TV now. Because if you try and make a theatrical film, you've got to consider, like, what would... On a Friday night, why would I... Sort of spend 50 quid and get out. And if you put yourself in that, if I put myself there, I wouldn't go and see Shifty. That's the honest truth. I hadn't thought about it that carefully then. And then, because we just wanted to make a good film and it kind of it worked out for us. But on the Friday night when it was happening, we were all getting our suits on to go to the big screening and it was like bright sunshine and everyone's in the pub. And I, well, I nearly, we would have stopped for a pint ourselves. It's like, what, what's going to get you to go, you know? That's, you could just ask yourself that It's co- most of it's common sense it really is one of, the,
3: one of the things we all got you know, when you guys came up with Welcome to the Punch you know, one of the big things was you were doing an action thriller a UK action thriller film yeah. which was going to show off London I mean that's something that really appeals I don't, you know, we, don't, we can do that we should be doing that we should be kind of making great genre cinema and showing off the best of British it doesn't have to be you know, I don't know what a British film is
0: like, Luke Besson makes films in France. Like he made, like, the taxi films and um, what's his other big action film, like Taken. Trans- but they're fr- yeah, sort of French-developed films. We could do that here. We haven't done them that much yet. We could. Even London's a great city to do them in. They'd be British because they were in London with British talent,
3: but that would yeah, be the so reason You guys why. did it with Welcome to Punch and you know Vertigo, just rebooting the Sweeney, but they've been very conscious, as they did with Street Dance, to kind of make London this kind of... Not postcard... London, but, you know, show the best of it, um, you know, do the kind of Michael Mann sweeping sunset across, you know, it's not, it's not, um, you know, it doesn't have to be grey, well. It doesn't <laughs> have to be,
1: apart from that, although with my if Creative you... England hat on, I do have to say it doesn't have to be London either. No, no, exactly, <laughs> no, no, exactly,
3: exactly. but, you know, we, we have sold films in the past um, which do kind of trade on that kind of very British... Uh, we did a film, we picked up a film um, called Wild Target, which was kind of Bill Nighy driving around in a mini, you know, which was quintessentially RP British and that does sell to a lot of places. But then, on the flip side, there will be kind of British filmmakers, you know, there are loads of great British filmmakers coming through, not just Loach and Mike Lee, but, you know, we are working with Ben Wheatley who did Down Terrace and then Kill List and now just Sightseers and through that process, you're, we're helping him build an international kind of um, group of distributors. So people who are... And it's not just us now, it's repeat business. So the French are coming back and funding his next films, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that's that's really important, not just developing relationships for British filmmakers um, just here, but also internationally.
2: I think at the end of the day, it's out of our control because it's what people want to see and what the fashion is. I mean, I think it's really interesting that Scandinavia is so popular now after the trilogy, the what's it killing. like? The, yeah, and now the killing. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, all the, the the thing that kicked it off was the um, Dragon, Dragon Tattoo films. And now everyone's obsessed. You know, everyone's wearing those jumpers <laughs> and like when you know and all this. I just it's out of our control. It's the kind of fashion thing that people sort of have a craze for, mm. and it changes all the time.
1: But I think it would be it would be great to see a few more Friday night films, as you say. So come on, producers. <laughs> yes I mean, Working
0: Title do it, don't they? They, you know, they make films that have got some kind of British sensibility for a huge audience and they travel all around the world. So you can, it is there in that sense yeah. as well.
3: Yeah, and I, I don't think you have to limit your, you know, maybe I shouldn't be saying this <laughs> <laughs> in terms of creative England eye features, but don't, you don't have to think of your story just within Britain. I mean, you know, we did no, mon- mon- Monsters with Gareth Edwards going off to Mexico, shooting the film setting in America. That benefited the film quite uh, again, greatly. People perceived it as an international film, or well, slightly like American film, but um, yeah, it was not viewed anywhere as a British film. Just tell us great stories. They don't have to be limited to
1: here. Well, with my Creative England hat on as well, certainly we, we say that within our development fund, if your story happens to be set in you know, Peru, Costa Rica, it doesn't matter mm. if you're from the regions and you're someone we can support, then if that's where your story needs to be, then that's fine because it's all about telling the best, best story and making the best film that you can be rather than trying to box ticks, saying, well, you know, oh, this has to be set, set there. Unfortunately, our funding means that we can only support people, support our own constituents who, for your information, are people who live within England but outside of London because that, then you're on Film London's patch. But, yeah, it's all about making the, the actual project as best as it, as it possibly can be. Oh, there's another question in there, and then we might move on to social um,
3: media, etc. My name's Carl Rock. I'm a writer-director. Um, just a specific question for Jeremy. With Down Terrace and Ben Wheatley, did you actually come on board with Down Terrace before you hit the festivals or after? No, actually, on, on Down Terrace, we didn't, we didn't um, sell Down Terrace. Well, for that film, I think Magnolia came on board. They picked up the US, and they also have a, 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 an international division. But I saw Kill List at uh, Raindance, I think, and then, yeah, just was blown away by it and thought, you know, these guys know what they're doing. We want to be in, you know, so I just got in touch with them straight away. And then um, at a parallel time, they kind of, Film 4 helped them develop their next couple of projects. So, um, and Protagonist is kind of, Film 4 a minority shareholder in Protagonist. So there was kind of a dual thing going on. But yeah, no, we, as soon as we saw that, we read cool list, and then we came on board at the script stage. And who are the people of Film Four that are particularly working in development at the moment? Well, yeah, I mean Film Four are very filmmaker-driven. You can get in touch with them. They've got a whole swathe of development personnel. So, um, and the kind of you know commissioners. So people like Catherine Butler, Sam Lavender, Eva Yates. There's a whole slew of them. You should just. But the best way to go. They've got a very kind of um, structured submission process. So they're very receptive. And and you should. You know, I think you can just get their details on the Film Four website. Thank so. you. Another question? Hi there. Um, my name is Robbie. I'm a writer and producer. Um, here is just a question about the, the high and low estimates. And um, is there any guide? Is there any way... I mean, you said you were quite protective of your figures. And, wh- I mean, wh- where can you? is there a guide or some no, way of getting that information? Really,
2: because every film is individual. So, I mean, every film is assessed as that particular film. We don't really have a sort of price list. So, you know, it really depends on all the elements of the film, the director, the, the producer, the cast. When it's being delivered, there are loads of elements that go into how we project um, income on a film. It's totally individual.
0: I didn't do it early enough, probably, but when you, go, you can find the money and just go to a film festival and kind of try and get a pass for the market and kind of see how it works in some way or meet some of these guys, it's, it's pretty illuminating, because both guys here really care about cinema, you can tell that, but... And other people do, but a lot of them could easily be selling like apples and pears. They really could. And it's like, what are the best apples and pears and like how much you want them? It's like the most mm. sort of entrepreneurial business in that way. If you've got something people want, the price goes up. It's it's, 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 that's what's so exciting about the side of that side of the business.
3: Yeah, I mean, if, you, if you've got a film that um, you've made and you're just you're launching it at a festival, yeah, that's a bit of a different scenario to kind of creating numbers for you know, something that's in production. So just from our experience last year with Your Sister's Sister, having it in Toronto, which kind of one and a half thousand people responding in, to the film. The numbers, d- to sell the film there and then is a, different, mm. is a completely different number to going to the next market in a cold, in a cold space mm. where there's kind of just buyers on their Blackberries not paying attention to the film. It's, 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 it's wildly different.
2: I mean, our figures change throughout the market. Yep. You know, we'll come with, with our, our asks and our takes that we're taking the films that we're launching at a market, Depending on the reaction, you know, hopefully we say, oh, let's bump them up a bit or mm, this hasn't been received so well. Perhaps we have to go more towards the kind of, you know, towards the take price. Um, otherwise, we're going to frighten people away. It's really a lot of negotiation it's, it's, and it's all on the spot.
1: And I think what's remarkable as well for people who haven't been to markets is just the sheer volume mm. of material that's out there. If you go to, you know, Cannes or something like that... It, Away from the, the actual festival side of things, to go into the market and to see the hundreds and hundreds and thousands of films that are being sold and see the stalls, and, mm. and only, only a certain number of films will, will get a poster. Only a certain number of films. I mean, they, there are people there with <laughs> pretty much just, you know, books. And getting people for... into the
2: screenings is like very, very difficult because there are hundreds of films all the time. Every hour of the day, there are different films being screened, and it's our job to get people into our screenings of the films that we're selling. And This year, in particular, in Cannes, it was the most terrible weather. It was like it's been here. And we had a screening one day in the middle of this massive thunderstorm and, and the monsoon and everything, and we had three people in the cinema. And When you've prepared you know, for, for, for months for something, and, and nobody would go out in the rain. That's our job. That's what we have to do, is just trying to claw them in if we can.
1: Well, one producer I was talking to before this session, who was the producer of Weekend, was talking about his experience of going to market because he actually decided to go to, well, sorry, it was, a, it was a festival that he went to before he had a sales agent on board. He decided to go that route. And so he was therefore responsible for driving as many people into the screening as he possibly can could and did this using social media which is something I want to talk about but he was saying what was Im- what was impressive about that is that because he'd set all that up before he went in as people came out the Twitter account went mad about the response to the film and there was this lovely sort of match between the homework that he'd done to get everybody in setting up the account then seeing how that through the, re- the reactions to that account was then got all the buyers into the next screening because they'd seen this thing go mad. Um, so I think what I'd like to do is um, is just talk a, a little bit about what you can do for your own film. So if you're working either on your own or in conjunction with a sales agent, it seems to me that it's got... Well, you need to do your homework now. You need to be supporting your own film if you've got someone on board or not, and maybe ask you all your experiences of your own sort of homegrown or what you want to see your producers do for the film and then what you were doing to, to try and um, exaggerate and, and help what the sales agents were doing for you.
0: We, I haven't released a film since kind of Twitter and that level of social media. But I, my approach to it is actually to make the best film and think about being the producer of the movie and the financing of that and get that together and the cast and all those things and have all those things at my fingertips and then let these guys do the do the kind of reaching out to the next stage. So I haven't because I think that there's people that are really good at that and that's not what I do i try and say we're going to release through momentum welcome to the punch I want to make sure that my relationships with all the talent are very strong that I can call them and if we need to take an opportunity that we can take that 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 we need the director to turn up somewhere that people will do that stuff for me because that's what I need to deliver for the distributor but I won't try and set up a Twitter account and dry it you know I'm not, not really interested in that I think the thing that I can do best is make the best film and give those guys the best chance to
3: yeah, no, I'd agree. Just going back to that talent thing you just mentioned now, I mean, that's one thing that is actually really, really important and you should factor into the kind of life of your film is ensure that the key talent are there to support the film six months, or, where possible, to go and be support and talk about your film. Because you'd be surprised, a lot of you, you do talk to a lot of distributors, say in Australia, you know, it's the other side of the world, but where you're talking about very, you know, specifically in low budget filmmaking, which tends to be a bit more personal. You know, it's really important for the director to get down there and you know, do a Q&A and meet the audience and big up their own film. Well, that's one thing where you know social media is great, and you can you can go online and read all about it. There's nothing like having the director there talking to the audience and explaining their film to you to kind of then drive the publicity. And there's a lot of films where distributors come to us and said, "You know what? Um, we did the best we could. We we're really hopeful, but you know the director didn't come down and support us." they do think that has a quite large effect on on the smaller stuff.
1: But in terms of maybe micro-budget, I'm seeing a lot more filmmakers who are trying to build this buzz themselves. I mean, I I appreciate that's a more sort of traditional relationship, I think, to to step back. And and a lot of us are allergic to Twitter and all of that kind of thing. Kerry, have you had any um, experience of people kind of building their own, trying to build their own audience? or, Or even coming to you and saying, I've got this many followers on facebook or whatever and does that make any difference to you is that worthwhile is
2: it worth these guys doing that we have a documentary called cameraman um, about jack cardiff the cinematographer um, that was in Cannes classics last year which was you know it's a fantastic film and the producer and director really enthusiastic it was a bit of a passion um project actually i think it took 10 years to get off to get it made totally and everything and they use this social network stuff all the time. And I'm sorry if I sound really stupid, but I'm a bit dyslexic with all that stuff. But they, and they... Um, I mean, even now, and the film's been out all over the world and everything, they still get this information out all the time. And I think it probably does, certainly in the early days, probably really helped a lot with the awareness. So, I mean, if you've got a small film that you're trying to get to the attention of, I mean, it's just, like, it's just like publicity, really, isn't it?
1: So, as far as you're concerned, if someone were to come to you, is that... Is that- any
2: currency to you or it's just a nice to know actually I've used that as an example but also with other films I mean the people in my office are actually that's part of the campaign the social networking sites it's also part of the whole campaign of the film so we use it as well so you have to be working in conjunction with the people that you're working with or if you're working on your own just you know, just get it out to as many people as possible
3: yeah I think it comes down to where it's going to be most beneficial is when you're trying to build a sustainable career so, you know, you, you create your own constituency of followers who will be coming back and following you for whatever your next film is. So, I mean, obviously it's quite difficult to kind of, you know, whip up a whole kind of crowd of people when you, when you haven't kind of launched yourself publicly for the first film. But think about, you know, these people. Think about your fans. The fanboys now rule. So think about them for, you know, film two, three. And that would be a huge point. You know, that's a huge draw, if for a, for a filmmaker's got a, a following, and that's where it can really benefit. And also, if your film, say you're one of the films that doesn't get into a festival, I mean, that's, that's, that's a real key thing we have to look at, and what's the strategy for films that don't get into a festival? And if you've been, from word go, harnessing or, or building awareness around your film, then, you know, when, when the, the VOD kind of future uh, Catches up a little bit. You know, you'll be able to if you can go and say, "Hey, Mr. Distributor, I've got twenty thousand followers you know, interested in this thing." and You just hand them that list. That's that's huge. Um, you know, if you've got a thousand, then maybe it's a drop in the ocean. But but yeah, it's something to definitely start investigating and, and log- logging into your film.
0: On that, on the new Stone Roses movie, they've they've really done that. The
3: filmmakers they've got ten thousand followers on that movie. So yeah, it kind of yeah, it depends on the nature of the film. Yeah. It's like we're saying about documentary or kind of anything, you know, especially music-based stuff. Um, that's where I think it can really benefit.
1: So.
4: OK. Um, my name's Cy Rosa. I'm a writer and producer. That You were talking about using London, almost like as a postcard, just using all the, the, the glamorous parts, really showing London in a great part, as a selling point for international market. I've just recently watched a film called Hard Sweets. We did a similar thing in South End. It's really glamorised South End. It may look really good, sort of Las Vegas, they use it, they kind of harness it really well. Well, I come from Margate, and we've obviously got a feature sort of set there. Along the similar sort of lines, we want to kind of glamorise it and make it look nice and slick, as opposed to run down and council statey. I just wonder what your thoughts are on sort of more regional areas of England and what their national appeal would be in comparison to obviously London, where everybody sort of wants to come as a tourist and things.
3: Yeah, thing. In those films, you know, talking about London, the postcard, that's more kind of you know, a, a, a commercial standpoint. But for these films, it's about, yeah, the, the aesthetic of your film is is completely... And the production value that you're bringing, whether it be whatever town it is, you know, how do you show off your... The, the key aspects of that town, so... Um, you shouldn't be trying to make Margate look like California, but
4: you know, in a lot of American films—they sort of, are the big the sort of the shots coming in from the coast, like Miami. They have the shots coming in from the sea, and you've got as you hit the sort of the seafront, it's all very glamorous Miami style. And we have the similar sort of thing down in Margate. I mean, with, it's a little bit more neon and sticks of rock, but you know, I th- we're going to try and use that sort of effect, not to replicate, just to, to accentuate what we've actually got as part of things. But I just wondered how sort of, that would stand out in the international market obviously amongst our friends in margate they think it sounds great <laughs>
2: <laughs> i think people are really in, foreigners are interested to see all of england so i mean as long as it looks nice i mean why not
0: yeah, it's, it's if it's
3: good i don't think that
0: yeah. um, the honest answer is it's not really i don't think it would help the, help them sell territories it's just if it's good and you may do it well, well
3: location can play an important part you know in, in terms of bringing what the character of your film is to the film so i mean yeah if you can find a great you know, location, whether it be Margate or... you know, That, that, that is a big deal, production value-wise, yeah. So. Thank you.
1: There was a question in the middle at
0: the back. Hi, uh, I'm Oliver Krimpas, I'm a director. Um, and in thinking of moving from short films to my first feature, um, I did some research to find out uh, for potential investors what kind of money low-budget films were making. And spoke to the BFI and was horrified to hear how few films actually make a profit. But the figures they had were only for UK domestic theatrical and DVD, and some of those were estimates. And I wondered if you could, and it's quite a broad question, I know, but if you could give us an idea of how many of these low or micro-budget British films, once they get out there to an international market, make money for their producers. I don't. I don't know about the percentage. I mean, I could tell, with Shifty, what happened is there's a lot of money being made on the film actually, but the people that put the cash up in the first place don't have their money back, and that's just due to the nature of the way that money comes back and how the distribution companies earn money. The way that we did the deal prevented our cash investors from getting their money back, which kind of, if we could have been a bit more savvy about that, would have been better but we, we weren't, so they, but there's a lot of money being made on the film. So that film would say it's in profit, and yet some people are still out of pocket. Those statistics are really difficult to quantify because the way that film financing works is often to kind of get to, a, get to point zero and it, all these other people have made money along the way. So a film being in profit is not to say that a film hasn't made money. It's quite difficult. Is, is there a simple way to avoid this problem with distributors taking all of the profits? because I've I've been here I mean I'm new to film but since I've been involved I've heard this over and over again small films that do make profit got no chance of seeing any of that money because of the the problem with the distribution system
3: well that's I mean that's where the you know if if films less and less will go to that model of going you know really wide theatrically like um, I think I think was 50 prints I mean like Kill List was 30 that's probably even too much even to go out 30 screens you have to put up a lot of P&A money, that they'll have to recruit their MG, the PNA, their, their fee, you know, that's, that's a lot of cash to get back before you're even talking about, you know, going on to the other ancillary stuff. So, you know, as that model changes, then hopefully, the filmmaker will be better off.
0: If you're going to make a micro-budget film, you kind of want to know when you start, if you're making it for your career or to make money. If you've made like three films before and you think, oh, OK, I'll make a fi- I can make a film much cheaper than the guys think that it should be made for and it'll be good, then you've got to think about all these things. But if you're just going to make a film for £200,000 and try and become a you know, big director, then if someone wants to release it on 100 screens and never give you any money, you might <laughs> want to just say yes to that as well. You kind of think about that as you start.
1: Let's back to what we were saying earlier about defining success for yourself. What is it that you want to get out of making this film? Thank you, well I think we'll end it there Um, I'll just do a quick plug for Creative England if I may, just to say if there's anyone in the audience who's looking for development funding at the moment we have a fund which is open for development of feature films so do have a look at the website you need to have at least one of your team residing in the regions for that but I always like to make people aware that there is money there and available but yeah, I just want to say thank you ever so much for everyone on the panel for for being patient with me, thank you Jeremy, thank you Ben thank you Kerry and uh, thank you for coming
0: Thank you for listening to this BAFTA podcast. For more information about the Academy and BAFTA archive, please visit www.bafta.org.